More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. It is October 2022, two and a half years after the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic, almost an unbelievable two years since the first person received the COVID vaccine. We've been through lockdowns, masking orders, vaccine mandates for employment in school, travel restrictions. We've seen the worst side of government, the implosion of our institutions, the exposure of ineffective, unquestioning media that just turns a blind eye to government corruption and regulatory capture. And perhaps worst of all, we're left with the effects of all of this on our children and our broken relationships. It's time to take stock, I think, to pull back a little bit and to figure out how we got here, where we're at, and where we are going or can go in the future, as opposed to just taking a passive back seat and let others make decisions about our lives. I can't think of a better person to do this with than my guest today. She is many, many things. She is impressive and awe-inspiring on paper. She's an award-winning investigative journalist. She spent 10 years as one of the hosts of The Fifth Estate. She's the author of What Was Asked of Us, a book about the Iraq War. And I didn't do it a series about the wrongfully convicted. But what I think of when I think of my guest today is her being unwaveringly unquestioning, self-professedly bipartisan, or maybe I should say nonpartisan, and an unconquerable defender of what she calls the downtrodden. I hope you will enjoy this conversation today with someone I consider to be one of the best journalists of our time and one of the smartest and irreverently honest and kindest people I know, my friend Trish Wood. So where are we at? <laughs> you just asked me how I'm doing. And I feel like that's such a hard question to answer these days because yeah. I don't know if like there's, it feels a bit like we've been through, there was this trauma and then it endures and it morphs a little and it endures and it goes on and it, I don't know, where are we at from your perspective? I think we're in the same uh, leaky boat. You know, I feel... <laughs> I feel the same way. I, I, I say on the show a lot, I, it's a tipping point. We've passed the bad stuff. They're going to figure it out, but they never, <laughs> it never sticks, you know? And um, I, I hate to say this, but I feel we have been changed in a way that we're never going to be able to dial back everything the way it was before this happened. And I think part of that is increment is because it was incremental right all these things happened to us and we were like oh you want me to rat on my neighbors that sort of feels uncomfortable but then people did it and they're okay i, I accept that right mm -hmm. and or our kids can't be well it's not good that kids aren't in school but you know we did that so that's okay we ended up doing i think so many things that violate who we are as people that i don't think we can come back from it all the way and i think both camps have their own little trauma i think trauma is a kind of an overused word but i actually I think it applies for this and i think not using it is probably not right um i i think that the the people who went along and who aggressively went along and who defended their their post by um uh ratting out people who didn't go along with the guidelines who had names for people who didn't want the vaccination, terrible anti-vaxxers, they have one sort of damage. And I think the people who received that have another sort because 
not just were they were were we i didn't get the the uh vaccine and i'm assuming you didn't either based on the positions you've taken um it, it's not just that that like i missed my son's graduation from from university right i i sent his older brother because i couldn't fly there you see so we had those practical things happen as a result of being awake mm -hmm. but i think the bigger kind of tear is a, it, it's like a rip in our, we, I think we have a moral injury, right? Because we see how quickly our friends and neighbors can turn into something we never thought they would and defend it, right? I interviewed a Holocaust survivor and I, I, I thought about it long and hard um, because there's a lot of pushback when you, when you try to connect what's been happening for two and a half years with that super extreme event, right? So obviously I didn't interview her about the Holocaust, that you can't, there's no historical layover for that template, really. But what, what she wanted to talk about and what I wanted to hear from her was, ha was not the, 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 the getting there, but, but what led up to that? What happened incrementally in the years to the population that they accepted more and more and more uh, pathological behaviors in leading up to what was what became the final solution and that's what I'm talking about here that you know there we were very careful about how the language we used because I know people who have used the analogy and they got you know you can never make an analogy of the Holocaust but but that's not the issue the issue is what happened leading up and what we learned she and I together through the conversation was that and what she what she said was that um, I wrote a very good book about it called Nazi Medicine which is a very highly regarded historical expose and what happened was that it were it was the science and the medical doctors who joined the Nazi party first and they did it in huge numbers and they didn't do it because they they were aware that in five years there would be a final solution they did it actually around some of Hitler's feelings about public health right it was all being done for the right reason at the beginning and then slowly um, they were doing the right things for the wrong reason and then they were doing the wrong things for the wrong reason and that's how the Holocaust happened and it felt it felt like I could put some of my anxiety maybe in that basket because I, I did feel, and I do feel, Julie, I actually, I'm glad we're talking. Um, I do feel that this could go too far and go off the rails. I'm not talking about internment camps, but the idea that people <laughs> were, 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 well, yeah, they did talk about it, right? But the, the idea that people were refused uh, transplants because they weren't vaccinated is, it's kind of on the same moral continuum, isn't it? I mean, that's, so, so that's where we are. So it's so interesting. You um, so I want to talk about the doctors, the Nazi doctors, and the collusion, and what's what's happening now. But when you mentioned uh, trauma, and we're a bit hesitant, I know, to, to go into that territory, but moral injury and a kind of trauma, and it's actually considered by the military to be a kind of post-traumatic stress when you yeah. experience right the moral injury that. Um, whether it's betrayal or I think one of the worst things that other people can do to us to injure our conscience or our moral compass is to make us doubt and question everything we are. 
Yes. But gaslighting is, right? Yes. And, and nudging. And it's all of it is saying, I'm going to take who you are, who you believe yourself to be, what you think is important. And I'm going to circumvent that. I'm going to undermine it. I'm going to cut through it and destabilize you. So it's so interesting to hear you say, we're kind of this leaky boat because every time we have a chance to, you know, something comes out, the court documents come out to yeah. show that the travel ban wasn't scientifically justified. You think there's the foothold now let's build from that. And then we don't, right. We seem to kind of, the media doesn't get the right traction. It, it, and, and so I wonder, you know, as I was hearing you talking because of, if nothing else, because of the time that this has gone on for two plus years, and it's no longer the case, is it, that we're the same people who have had something bad happen to us, no. but we've become fundamentally changed by this. And this feels like it's too early in the conversation to drop something I know, really look heavy, I know. but <laughs> do you think our civilization is on the verge of collapse? Do you think we are on a decline, whatever, and if so, what step are we at? Yeah, that's a, such a good question. Um, I'll answer it in a second. I just want to address something you said that was really smart. And that is the idea that there is, <clears throat> excuse me, the military does study, obviously moral injury and soldiers, because we now have, we've had like how many misbegotten wars since Vietnam, right? A cut three, I guess, if you, include both Kuwaiti and Iraq and maybe Afghanistan too later was misbegotten but let's just say there's three or four misbegotten wars and that means that the, the people who fight the wars are fighting the wars for one reason and the actual reason is something that nobody's really talking about right mm -hmm. so when soldiers go to war they go to war thinking they're doing something heroic they, they they're risking a life or pulling a trigger or watching their friends get blown up by an IED for a higher purpose. That's how they cope with it, right? And they now have generations of guys who fought wars and got home and everybody said, well, that's not what we meant. You know, there were no WMDs. The communist, um, the communist blocks were not going to fall all the way to Malibu Beach from Vietnam. So these guys who, I should say people because women are now in the front lines in some places too, but, but they come back with PTSD and what they've learned is that the PTSD is much harder to treat if there was no moral justification for the events that caused the trauma, right? These are the guys, these are why the Vietnam veteran, I used to work for a Vietnam vet, paralyzed guy, really smart, who came back and was, um, radicalized by his, his experience. He was one of the guys in Vietnam, Veterans Against the War, really smart. And um, and he, it, the fact that he could not understand the reason for his sacrifices and the, the things he witnessed in wartime became a driving, a driving focus in his life. He actually won, his organization won a Nobel Peace Prize because they did the Cambodia land, or the landmines campaign, right? Um, and that was the driving force behind his life. So I saw a lot of that in these guys who became activists against these stupid wars that America always drags us all into um, and understood how he never could have a normal life. He, he was still angry that people sent them off. He wasn't even drafted. I think he actually uh, was enlisted. But 
but uh, how people could send them off to war for one reason and that wasn't the reason. So what does that have to do with what you just said? So I fear for the people who bought into this. You have now people who are starting to realize their kids have been driven nuts or depressed or suicidal from mm -hmm. the school closings. There's no one can really debate that. And even Randy Weingartner is now, or Gart, Garten, I think the, the uh, teachers union in the States is trying to say, I never said close the schools. I mean, she was on every night demanding it, right? So everybody who was incrementally doing dangerous, stupid, immoral things for a good reason is now finding out that maybe that they were lied to. And that, I think, is the next phase of this. Either we're going to kind of open the kimono and talk about how the lockdowns didn't work, how the modeling was wrong, how school closures have ruined a generation of children, and say to the people who bought into it, we, f we forgive you for not thinking critically because you were mostly not thinking critically because, like, you know, during World War II, you wanted to be on the right team and do, you thought it was your civic duty, right? So that's, that's the bunch of people in our society that I, I don't quite fully understand what's going to happen. Can they walk away and be happy? Can they, will they just be kind of neurotic for their, I don't know what's going to happen to them, but there's a, it's a, sorry. Well, I was just going to say that the, the thing about physicians and healthcare providers that seems so difficult and I worry about how they'll react to this is if they're the people who went along with the protocols in order to, to do the best thing they thought they could be doing to protect people's lives and they have been feeding into and 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 you know, enhancing the harms of the protocols, including vaccination, more than possibly anyone else. They've given thousands of COVID vaccines. They've, you know, maybe encouraged children to wear masks, whatever they've done. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was part of their, I think we were kind of dancing around the topic of integrity before, weren't we? And this idea yeah. of wholeness of a person. But if it's part of who you are, part of your essence, to care deeply for other people and want to help them or at least not to hurt them and then you wake up one day and you think wow i how many people have i killed how many people have i it was my hand that did it i could have stopped i could have said no and just how does a person whose whose very being rests on the necessity of helping other people how do you how do you, you know, do that kind of interior rebuilding to accommodate the fact that you've got, got caused all that harm? Right? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I have two thoughts about that. One of them, the, the quick answer for me, I, I am a recovering alcoholic with 22 years sobriety. And I speak about it openly. Um, and for me, it was a spiritual solution, right? That you, 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 that interior stuff is, a, is really, it's a spiritual solution. I don't think we live in a particularly spiritual society either. So it's going to no. be hard, hard for people. Mm. Um, but I also, I also think, um, you know, there's a guy named Joseph Freeman or Freeman who, um, apologized to Jay Bhattacharya on a Zoom meeting. Mm. And he said, um, I was one of those docs in Louisiana who he's, he's working in emergency in a very, uh, in a hospital that has a lot of poor African-American uh, patients running through and they were really sick with COVID. 
And, um, and he thought that the Great Barrington Declaration was just a very, very bad idea and was quite vocal about it. He now realizes he was totally wrong. And he did this amazingly kind of spiritual giant thing. He said in front of a bunch of people, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And, um, and now he's working really, really hard to do right, given his, his enlightenment on this. And I think we need that. It's almost like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I don't think it's going to happen. Because the other thing I wanted to say about this is that I, I don't trust doctors anymore. And I don't know if it's that COVID changed them or COVID illustrated for me a problem that was starting to exist. And I'll tell you why. We did a show last week on um, physician-assisted dying, which I am theoretically in favor of under some circumstances. But we did this, this is actually a story that was broken by Avis Fabro at CTV, so credit where credit's due. But she um, interviewed a guy who was bedridden in the hospital with some neurological progressive disease. And he produced a tape of people from the hospital coming and saying to him, because he, was ha he couldn't leave, he didn't want to go into bad home care, he wasn't leaving, they offered him physician-assisted dying when they were talking about money and the fact that he couldn't like and I, I was just so shocked by that and and I thought you know that is a slippery slope I, I feel that doctors blindly uh, chanting safe and effective about vaccines and um, go and now my family doctor is pretty much telemedicine Anyway, he doesn't even know that I've gained 40 pounds during COVID lockdown. He doesn't know that. If I went to see him, he would be saying, oh, we better get, you know, keto or something, right? Doesn't know that. Um, so I feel, someone said to me the other day that doctors now practice medicine through guidelines. Everything is a guideline. And I wonder if that is what is maybe happened in this circumstance, that they were you know, they were told this is what we're doing and they did it without thinking and it was easier to not think than challenge because we certainly know the ones who challenged it were, mm -hmm. you know, destroyed and censored. But I, I do feel, I, you know, I have, a, I did an interview with a guy about, he has written a book about woke medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And of course he was pilloried for it. But um, it reminded me of when the CDC was deciding who to give the vaccines to initially, when everybody thought they worked. And instead of triaging to the elderly, who were most vulnerable, they didn't want to do that because they were mostly white. Like there was actually that discussion at the CDC about it. So to me, this is all so anti-science. It's so anti-medicine. It's about, you know, the, the, uh, the um, Ontario science table comes from a super, super woke public health Mm -hmm. um, school. Um, if you read some of the stuff on the website, it's it's not so. I, I feel like there has been a change already around the that the, that the doctors are, especially the ones who see themselves as social justice warriors, or more are more interested in that than they are in the kind of patient doctor relationship as an individual thing. So I'm scared about that. I'm scared about what medicine's doing right now. It's shocking to me. I mean, I, I went and saw your, your work at the citizens hearing. When was that in June? And yeah. you, I mean, it astounds me that you, for three days, you basically interviewed people all day. Yeah. And 
there were physicians, there were public health people, there were government representatives, and then appallingly, these poor vaccine injured people. Injured people. Yeah. Um, but when you watch the doctors, I'm thinking, you know, Eric Payne and Francis Christian and people like yeah. that. Love them. And they are so not what you were just speaking about. Yeah. They are so clear headed, clear thinking, concerned about harms, curious, questioning. And we see that in every vocation and sphere of life now. We, we saw a little bit of that in the House of Commons and in the Senate around the Emergencies Act. We, we have a few journalists who do this, yourself included. We have a few academics. You think of people like Bruce Party and Jordan Peterson, whatever you think about him, you know, I mean, they like him. Like I'm good. Like Dave Haskell, you know, I mean, it, it just, I know that we use this phrase to death, talking people being asleep and people being awake, but it really just feels that way. And that the people who are asleep are, um, they're lemmings there. You talk about guidelines and well, I do what I do, not because my critical thinking has produced this as the best possible decision based on a sort of a, a comprehensive sense of an analyzing the situation and my beliefs and the options and the alternatives. I do it because I'm told to do it. And there's a safety net to falling in line with the consensus. Yes. And then there are these people who are just awake. They've seen it from the beginning. This doesn't fit with reason. And I'm I'm so I'm sure I've asked this pe of people in other interviews. I think I think I ask it of myself every day. But you tell me what you think. What makes the difference between these people? What do you think? Is it? Well, I, I think I, I have a theory about it. I think my the short answer is that the people who were awake and awake first and took the biggest risks in my view, were all people who are deeply, deeply humane. They were seeing the fallout from lockdowns and school closures and not and, and able to understand that damage and to say, we need to do a trade off here. So I think that's part of it. I, I think age is also sort of part of it. I think, um, you know, I, I, I was at uh, CBC, as it happens, covering Fauci back in the days of AIDS. I was going to ask you about this. Can yeah. you tell everybody a little about this so that they can get caught up? Because I don't think that even people who follow you necessarily know about your background and what may have tipped you off to what's going on now. So. Sure. Well, so a couple of things. My background is I was a science journalist at As It Happens and during the days of, of AIDS and Fauci. And then I, I also had a pretty big career as a as an investigative reporter on frequently on pharmaceutical products liability back when the media actually exposed those problems, which they don't seem to want to do anymore. <laughs> and so so w the reason that my covering Fauci in those days is important now is because I can say absolutely without any hesitation that the way he is covered now as this sort of heroic god of science um, is absolutely not how the CBC, through me, covered him in those days. The New York Times has always been terrible at health and medicine. They're, they're very kind of narrative, what, what is the bureaucracy saying? They've always been bad. They were bad at AIDS and they're bad now, right? But there were those of us in places like CBC and the Village Voice and some other 
kind of really thinky investigative places who were reporting very negatively on on Tony Fauci. And so when I saw him resurfacing again around COVID, I was like, what the hell? Because when he- Didn't we learn our lesson? I, I know, right? But what was interesting, um, well, I'll say this, that he, the, the gay community who were primarily the people infected at that time, um, hated him. And they used to hang from the big fence at the NIH building, I think it's in Maryland, um, wearing signs saying Fauci is a murderer, right? I mean, they and, and because he was not addressing the problem in a way that was having an immediate impact on their health. There was a big patient constituency around AIDS, which was great because mm -hmm. it was primarily young gay men with money who were really smart and who kind of were doing what Alex Berenson does today. They could read a study and say, this is flawed, this is nonsense, we don't believe this. They, were, they could take guys like Fauci on head on. Um, so they, 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 he was accused of all sorts of terrible things, many of, of which were true. And one that I know to be true, and that does um, really reflect on how he's managed COVID is when he was asked by um, some of these clinicians who were treating gay men, trying to keep them alive desperately, they were dropping like flies. If you got AIDS at a certain period of time, you just died. I mean, there was just no, nobody was getting out alive uh, for many, many years. And so these frontline doctors were very, very dedicated to their patients and keeping them, keeping them alive. And one of the things they discovered in a lot of repurposed drugs was that a drug called Bactrim, which is a sulfur drug, it's like an antibiotic, worked really well against a form of pneumonia, almost always fatal in gay men, uh, called PCP, pneumocystis green pneumonia is what it's called. And if you prophylaxed with it, meaning if you gave it to them before they got sick, you could fend it off or have a much milder case. So it was a brilliant thing. Everybody was desperate to deal with PCP. So a guy named Michael Callan that I got to know quite well, he was the longest surviving uh, person with AIDS, PWAs they were called. Uh, at the time I knew he'd had it for 11 years, which was astonishing. Um, he was a big activist and he booked an appointment with Tony Fauci, went to see him at the NIH with a couple of uh, clinician doctors and said, please, please put out a bulletin that will, because there was no internet, right? That will tell doctors to try this. It had no side effects, really. Mm -hmm. um, There's no downside. And they were seeing really good, really good results with it. And Fauci wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. I interviewed Michael Callan not long before he finally died of AIDS. We were sitting, remember it well, uh, in the penthouse of a really snazzy, um, hotel in New York, one of the trendy ones, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Michael and I, and I was interviewing him and he knew he was near death. It may have been his last interview ever, I'm not sure about that, but it was certainly in there. And he said the biggest regret of his life was not being able to convince Tony Fauci to send out a bulletin about Bactrim because by that time um, they counted that there were roughly maybe 17,000 men who would have not died had they had access to Bactrim, right? So it's not something without a consequence. So um, I also went to see Tony Fauci on this topic as part of that show, interviewed him at the NIH, had a pretty 
a pretty dramatic knockdown drag out argument with him about it because his he kept saying oh we need more studies this is his thing we need more studies we need more studies we need more studies right and um and he he would he just absolutely wouldn't endorse it and i could see then from my own experience with him how slippery he is and you can see that when ron johnson goes at him in the states right like he kind of slithers out of these things he's caught dead to rights about with the wuhan lab they were funding gain of function there's no question about that but he he'll say oh i wasn't doing that and there's documents showing that he was doing it he, he just he it's very hard to land anything against against fauci so i was prepared that he was not going to endorse these early treatments like hydroxychloroquine. I don't even know where we stand on that now, if I still know mm -hmm. enough about it. But but um, certainly with um, ivermectin, he was doing the same thing. He was trying to tamp it down. The other thing that happened at the AIDS conferences was that every year people would come and they'd say, we're going to have a vaccine within the year. Mm -hmm. And the media would dutifully, you know, there'd be a headline, AIDS vaccine within a year, right? We still don't have one. And, and so, uh, again, it's, he's always had a focus on the vaccines, always had that. And the other thing he did, and then I'll, I'll stop on Fauci, but the other thing he did was he endorsed a study which suggested that kids could get AIDS through casual contact. And there was a study that said these children had been li living in a household with people who were infected with HIV and that they got HIV that way. Totally cannot happen. It cannot happen. Didn't happen. Yeah. And it was so scary, especially once he endorsed this madly flawed study that was eventually withdrawn, that that fueled the fear against people with AIDS. So that back in the day when I was doing it, doing the reporting, uh, when I got into TV, you know, cameramen wouldn't even pin a microphone on person with AIDS, right? They were so afraid they were going to get it. Mm -hmm. And so you see all these themes repeating, you know, the f absolute fear mongering, mm -hmm. the, the inability to allow clinicians a real voice when they are saving people in lieu of a vaccine that there was even worse this time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, and, and, the, and the absolute stubbornness and ego that is, I think, almost pathological in this guy. I don't know why he's still there, but because of politics, the people with AIDS, the AIDS community now loves him because he's a lefty and they hated Trump more. So <laughs> seriously. I mean, I mean, in some sense, in some sense, Trump has done the conservatives a great disservice because he's given someone, you know, he's given the left someone to hate so much that we're willing to usher in so many other things just, just to avoid Trump. But you know, it's funny as I, um, I've been dying to ask you a question. And as I think about asking it, it feels like it has to be a rhetorical question, Okay, <laughs> but you can see what you think. Sure. Your experience in journalism and just now with this, the Fauci story at the top of our minds, Yeah. does the truth always come out? What a great question. I think. So that's not rhetorical then. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, I, I think it, I, it depends how you just like, I, I think uh, it mostly does like the complicated stories, like what I just said about about covering HIV. The other thing I covered that was really complicated was recovered memory syndrome and yeah. satanic ritual abuse and multiple personality disorder. Right. So that became a huge thing. 
kind of the way the trans thing is big now, right? That where academics have gone way too far. If you challenge it, it's heresy. It's like a cult. It's like, well, this was the same thing. All these people were, these academics were on, on the bandwagon that uh, babies were being ritually abused and eaten in these undergrounds. It was just like ridiculous, but it was mainstream. Oprah did it right well then uh, yeah i know so we but when we did that we did two docs for the fifth estate we were one of the first teams to do it uh michelle mativier and i she's completely brilliant and we had to even do a disclaimer off the top because people were afraid that we would be accused of not listening to women and children who were complaining about having been abused. That that was the bulwark that stopped people from talking about it. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I think these things do come out, but that story, I will, I just I was talking to somebody about this the other day. We did it, we exposed it, it got a lot of positive attention. We were also slagged off by our feminist sisters who said, you know, we have to believe all women. I think Judy Rebeck actually wrote a mean piece about us, which she probably would take back now. But but um, it was actually resolved the way that, like, for instance, I think the vaccines might be resolved. People who were practicing psychology and convincing their clients they'd been ritually abused by their parents for years without ever having a memory of it, mm -hmm. started to not be able to get insurance malpractice. The, the insurance companies may be the great moral arbiters now, right? Because oh, for, I, COVID. for mm -hmm. COVID, because I heard from um, Ed Dowd, we had him on, he, he said that the insurance industry, like the Wall Street money kind of actuarial guys, mm -hmm. actuaries, are, are, are talking about the vaccine and excess deaths, right? And at the end of the day, money talks. And if they feel, if they become convinced that the vaccines are killing people, mm -hmm. they will stop insuring people who get the vaccines, right? And they will stop funding this apparatus what happens, right? what happens then to society given that the vast majority of people are vaccinated yeah are we just going to have are we going to have no more life insurance no more um and then what happens to the insurance industry which supports so many other i mean where, where do you see all that going well i think it's really interesting that that if if, if the truth becomes widely known because of some commercial enterprise right instead of reporting or publication in scientific journals that's that highlights you know or media right that highlights a really interesting failure in our culture doesn't it i mean that for me and i say this on the show a lot julie and i should say it every day that i really fully believe that everything wrong in our culture right now is allowed to flourish and continue because we do not have a working legacy media holding people to account, right? Have you ever heard any of these people say to Theresa Tam or even our prime minister, the shots are not stopping transmission anymore. Why are we mandating them? Like that, that should have started a year ago and it should have, and the way, here's how they used to do it. <laughs> and I'll, I'll use Give us the ideal picture. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll use Rupa Subramanya's story, the one about them not relying on science oh. to invoke mm -hmm. the travel mandates, right? Mm -hmm. So Rupa does a really great old school 
investigative journalism piece based on documents from a trial. That's where they often come from. That's great, you know, absolutely unimpeachable story. What would have happened in the olden days if the media were not lined up, up uh, to, to support the narrative is she would write that story and the people covering the prime minister and the transport minister would have scrummed him, right? And they'd be waving Rupa's story and saying, is it true that you did it? You know, and they would hammer and hammer and then the opposition would pick it up in the house and they'd hammer and hammer and they'd force them to either explain themselves or apologize or produce whatever scientific information they are claiming they based it on, right? It then becomes a group effort. There's, a, there's the initial scoop by the person like Rupa, who's one of the few, um, getting those kinds of stories, but then everybody else as a team, you kind of pick it up so they can't, they can't get a clean getaway, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't do that. What did they do? They actually attacked Rupa. There was a few attacks on Rupa over that. And I just thought, you know, you guys are so transparent. You're doing terrible journalism. Everything you said about the convoy was a lie or wrong or stupid or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you've got an actual person working in your midst who's doing the kind of work you used to do and you slag her off that way. I mean, so I just get back to what I said. I really, we are in dire straits. And, uh, you know, to quote the Washington Post, who are one of the most corrupt journalistic organizations in the world right now, democracy does die in darkness. And it, we are dark because once the media ally themselves with the power elites, we've got a problem. And I think they did it because they're taught social justice reporting in university. Now, I only learned this a couple of years ago. I thought, what the hell is going on? Mm. And I started reading about what they're teaching them and, and a belief that it's okay to shade the truth or not tell certain kinds of stories because it's for a higher good. In the case of COVID, they were protecting the elites, but they also bought into what public health said in a big way and without, a, you know, without thinking critically about it. And I think partially it's just that we, we don't have the best and the brightest in the business right now. You know, we, we, we just don't, I'm not being mean. We don't have, they're not there. They're I can't there. tell you how often I hear from people People who are very pro-narrative, of course, but also people who are a little sensitive to the what's going on. And but you know, I can't tell you how often I hear mainstream media can't be wrong. And I find that to be such really? an interesting and I hear it from a lot of different kinds of people, wow. different ages, different age groups. Initially, I thought it's just an epistemological claim. For some reason, mm -hmm. I believe that mainstream media is such an entity that error has been weeded out procedurally, I don't know, and they're just, or, or maybe just, maybe it's just a matter of fact that they get very few things wrong. But I've come to realize that the, the tone with which that statement is uttered means something much more personal and moral. I think it means something more like mainstream media can't be wrong because if they're wrong, then what? Then what do I believe? Then what does that say about where we've gotten? Then, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know how you correct from within the system of media without 
And in some sense, you don't want it to correct from within because you want people to realize, hold on, that trust was actually misplaced. Yeah. And they took your trust and, and ran with it and ran to some very terrible places with it and arguably have hurt you with it because it's that implicit moral trust in our main Oh, in, in CBC and CTV and in the Toronto Star that has caused people to make decisions about their health that can be quite detrimental. So I, I guess I'm wondering, I mean, what, what do people do now? How do you, do we stop reading the news? Do we read alternative sources? What kind of pressure has to come from the public if that even works to see a kind of change that we need so this can't happen anymore? Well, I, I think a couple of things. I think um, like even CNN, which is like one of the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. I mean, really terrible. Mm -hmm. um, they have a new guy and who's running the show. They got rid of Jeff Zucker, and, but not for the reasons they should have gotten rid of him. Mm. I, there was some other malfeasance, but but um, who's who's cleaning house a little. It won't be enough, but he's mm. cleaning house a little. So what 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 does one do? Um, you know, Substack is in my view the new new yorker um mm -hmm. you've got to curate who you're reading obviously you don't have an editor there saying this guy's good and that guy's good but but i think that's important but mostly and i'll use the tra the trans extremism story maybe as an example um and i wrote about this on my Substack a couple weeks ago and it's got a huge response and i call it the we're living the fall of rome right I saw that was yes, brilliant. Can you tell? Thank you. Oh, that? thanks. Yeah. So, so, so I've been walking around like I am a classical, classical liberal, right? I, I was a Bernie Sanders. You like freedom, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And and I I only like my I have the bona fides. That that's what my reporting mm -hmm. was about. You know, all, always sticking up for the little guy and you know, um, trying to hold powerful people to account. That's what journalism is. And I think that's what liberalism is. Mm. Um, so I found, just talking about the story, the fall of Rome, um, I found myself getting more and more freaked out about my inability to connect with my own horror about what I was seeing, right? So mm. I covered AIDS, I'm super pro-gay, marched in the parades, you know, did all the stuff. I've got the bona fides and, and gay men and, and straight women are traditional allies, right? Like we were some of the first people to, I marched with the Stonewall drag queens in New York and all that stuff back in the day. So don't come at me, anybody, mm -hmm. over what I'm about to say, because I, I'm sorry, you just, you can't, I'm not transphobic, right? But what I realized was, and it's kind of like, um, there's a book called The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker, and Gavin De Becker writes that we should always pay attention to a rising anxiety in our lives, mm -hmm. meaning that if you're walking on a dark street and someone's behind you and you get the willies, cross the street. Don't be nice. You don't want to hurt their feeling. Cross the street, right? Mm -hmm. And I also learned in the Ted Bundy documentary we did that some of the women who were attacked by him tamped down their own kind of um, subconscious understanding that he was dangerous. They were trying to be polite. They, they were raised to be dutiful young women. Bundy often had his arm in a sling and he'd say, help me. And so they didn't think they could say no, even though they were scared. And then he 
attack them, right? So where I'm going with that is this, that I found myself in watching the trans, extreme trans story uh, roll out, that I was getting more and more anxious about what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And I did think, am, am I just like an old person who has become conservative in my old age and, and this is actually a good thing and it's a human rights issue? And I just realized, no, that's not what's going on. It is not right for scantily dressed men for a fetish mostly to dance like strippers like like um, exotic dancers for children who are giving them money that 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 exchange that commercial exchange mm -hmm. in a strip club is about getting together later it's sexual right so why all of a sudden is this thing that is infused with illicit sex and I would say not very healthy sexual stereotypes either all of a sudden okay to expose our children to my horror at it is 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 absolutely correct and true and it's not aimed at any single drag queen or person but we can't have this we can't be exposing our children to this stuff and kind of going along and I, I in, in watching the videos of it that I did you know, you can see the parents and they, they think it's sort of cool and, and maybe it gives them a left left wing kind of bona fides or something. I know Max Boot, the um, the uh, former conservative who's now a left wing darling because he's heavily into regime change wars, wrote in a piece in the Washington Post, he was bragging that he took his stepkids to a drag show. What is up with that? Like, what is up with that, right? So, so it, it's that plus a lot of things about that movement that are dangerous for women and women should be allowed to say we don't want to see a guy walking through our change rooms with his junk hanging out mm -hmm. we should be protected from that that used to be sexually assault sexual assault people would be charged so why now because it's being contextualized differently by a group that's being pretty well funded by the way by some wealthy families including the pritzkers out of chicago um, why does that recontextualization of it mean that we still have to stand it if we don't want to see it, right? So you asked me a question about what people can do. The media has bought into the extreme trans ideology hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. I, saw, I heard an interview, Carol Off, who I admire very much as a journalist, did a show on As It Happens about four or five years ago, um, the library in Toronto was being picketed by trans activists because of a book presentation. It might have been Abigail Schreier or someone else anyway who'd, mm -hmm. who'd crossed a line with the activists. And, and she defaulted in that interview to, well, what's wrong with, what's wrong with letting them have their, you know, letting them have their, their censorship of this event and to, to, to stop the event on their behalf because they might commit suicide if they don't that talking point which has you know kind of infected this whole debate right and, and and of course now my response to that is gee if people have suicidal ideation it can be for a bunch of reasons besides just the fact that they are struggling with gender identity my point is we have to start speaking out we have to say to the newspapers and to the people who are trying to rearrange our reality 
in such a way that we're afraid or ashamed to talk about what we know to be good and true. That is a good first step because the media are all in, right? They are all in on, on the drag queen shows and the um, gender surgeries for 15 year old girls who get their um, mm -hmm. breasts lopped off by zealous. You know, in this, I'll just say this thing, not to get too revved up about it, but I only learned this recently. In Canada, it's either about to be or it is illegal for a therapist treating someone who has come in for trans type of struggles to investigate any other cause, right? It's gender affirming care only. And if you, and they liken it to the old psychology and psychiatry where they used to try to turn gay people straight. That was wrong right? That was conversion therapy. Wrong. They now, they, they call a therapist wanting to investigate the reasons a teenager or a child might be saying these things, aside from it actually being a trans child, mm -hmm. they, they, they call that the same as, as conversion therapy and you're not allowed, you're, you are not permitted to do it. So a kid says they good, they're in the silo and away they go and that's it. And we're, no one's doing any, well, what's his name billboard somebody you know there's a guy who goes around the sandwich board who's been protesting this for years who i think we all should admire and send money to but but i i think this is a long way from your question about media i'm sorry but what i wrote in the fall of rome is stuff that should be being talked about certainly in the opinion columns mm -hmm. for the and it's it's not right it's people are afraid well, I appreciate you taking that digression because it, um, I mean, goodness, I, I remember th through my educational years, looking at our charter and seeing the words freedom of speech and not thinking much of it. If I thought anything, it was, do we need to protect that? Really? Is that a, it didn't feel very live to me. I think because I didn't ever see it threatened or, or not threatened in the way that it's threatened now. And now, I mean, in the last five minutes, you just said so many times, you can't say this, you can't say that you have, you know, and we're, and then we're talking about the physicians following guidelines earlier. We've yeah. just gotten to this point. Um, I mean, cancel culture never mind cancel culture we're at a point where what we say is is scripted we need to say the right things in exactly the right way what is my question i just find this so odd troubling but odd for a society that's supposed to have been built up as the result of many years of understanding so many harms and trying to be the leader in terms of a free liberal democracy and still maintaining that in some sense, like it's a costume we put on for the world to see. Like, yeah. look at us, we're a free liberal democracy. We like inclusion, we like tolerance, we like um, apology. We apologize to the indigenous people all the time, never mind the fact that they don't think there's anybody else that needs to be apologized to. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, there's, there's a web of questions here, but is our charter still relevant? Do we have any hope of being a democracy if we can't speak our mind? 
is our minds, will our minds be changed? Are they changing to the degree that our speech is not just, it's not just limited, right? Yeah. We're puppets or yeah. whatever the media more powerful than I ever thought it was, is telling us exactly what to think and say and who to be. Well, I was thinking the other day about um, what the latest pushback on people in this country and also in the States is, and that is the characterization of any aggressive accountability pushback as mm -hmm. terrorism or you know, it's, uh, right so christian freeland um you know i didn't like to see a woman the f word thrown at her no one likes that but you know she's a politician dude like right uh and he didn't step toward her um and i would not have said those things myself even though i'm pretty mad at christia right now um, and the way that, that that and the, you know, there was a, there were people mad at uh, Jagmeet because he was now giving the prime minister what it, in essence is a coalition government mm -hmm. um, and being yelled at by Sikhs. They tried the racist thing, but then it turned out to be Sikhs. So they couldn't. Oh, is that right? And so what <laughs> right? and so so the what I'm seeing, which is really interesting for me, is that the put and it's getting there's a big article about it to Toronto City Hall. All the city councillors are like, oh, people are mean to us now. And and um, our public health officer, Eileen DeVille, I think her name is same thing. Oh, she was getting death threats well if she was getting death threats okay that's fine but but they need to be discussing and the media needs to be looking at why is everybody so mad right now right the people who are mad it's not just a bunch of canadians who've always been crazy and making death threats so if this phenomenon is a new phenomenon what's going on why are people so mad and and you know for the for the people who were um kind of i i think she was being baby christian she's a grown woman i mean um it's a grown woman who does terrible things who so. does terrible things right like i've been in war zones i all kinds of stuff's happened and i don't expect a parade or coddling after you know right it's like mm -hmm. but 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 she froze the bank accounts of people who were donating their little 50 dollars to the convoy mm -hmm. that was such a moment i remember that as clearly as i remember almost you know i shouldn't say this because i was really young but when kennedy was shot like i actually remember the trauma of those days i was little little but i remember it because my mom was crying and I remember saying, oh, mommy was such a nice man. I didn't even know who he was really, but um, Rocky and Bullwinkle had been taken off TV for round the clock programming about- but You knew it. something was important. Something was important. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, maybe that's hyperbole, but but what I'm saying is the, the freezing of the bank accounts and the way that I received that and sat with it for a couple of days, my head was going, I'm really glad I didn't send them any money, mm -hmm. right? And, Boy, I've texted a bit with Tamara because she's been on the show. Are they looking at our texts now? Like that, this is the Stasi level stuff, right? And um, I have a friend who sent money and she was worried about it because she's high profile. And that terrible Dean Blundell idiot uh, doxed all the people. Like it was just like, I thought, what world are we living in now? So 
Christia Freeland and the freezing of the bank accounts, in my view, was one of the lowest points of democracy ever in the history of this country, maybe in the history of all democracies. Mm -hmm. The symbolism of it that we can screw with your money, with your access to the thing through which you buy food, you feed your family, you pay your rent, like what? Efficiently, quickly, no questions asked, you have no defense. Yes, and that the banks went along with it, I guess. Not for long, I think they were starting to freak out, but but um, that was a very big thing. So yeah, someone might say F you to Christian Freeland. They might say it, and they're saying it, here's why. It's not just because of what she did, but it's because the mainstream media isn't going after her for what she did. Our, mm -hmm. It's cognitive dissonance, right? We are living through this crazy time where we feel frequently victimized, misunderstood, punished, um, demeaned by our prime minister, and it's never reflected in the legacy media. I mean, guys like Andrew Coyne, he's a smart guy. He never writes anything even remotely sensitive about the growing demographic in this country of people who are feeling voiceless, and powerless about where we're going. They see, you know, the Prime Minister jetting off to these global events with the motorcades idling and meeting in secret with all these guys. They come back and none of the things that they're talking about actually affect our lives. I mean, Trudeau just gave a hundred million dollars on some big trans issues things, which is fine. But are like they do they have water yet at the reserves that like did that get sorted? I know there's a fund, but are they do they have clean drinking water well, it's yet? It's not really fashionable anymore, Trish. To, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So so I believe that 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 what I'm trying to say, there's these two pronged things happening. People are feeling more and more disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. They're acting up a little bit about it because no one's taking their side. They don't hear their questions reflected. Rosemary Barton is not reflecting. What Canadians are thinking outside of the laptop class that supports her, the CBC, and this government, right? Mm -hmm. So of course they're going to be mad, and um, I mean, I suppose I'm asking for a bit of noblesse oblige from these people who are all, you know, rich and successful. But I, I remember when Andrew Coyne called the truckers hillbillies in a headline. Like, why are you doing that? There's no evidence mm -hmm. that these people are. Yeah, they're working class. Is that what we call? You know, guys like Andrew Coyne used to be, you know, strumming the guitar and singing coal miner protest songs back in the day. But now we just, we hate working class, or they do hate working class. And never mind that it's geographically inappropriate because we don't have the hills that originated. The yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, but Trish, I have, I know we have a few minutes left, but I have to ask you, you know, you're mentioning our prime minister and my goodness, what a week it's been. Look at what's happened this week. So let's kind of talk. I don't know, sure. th those of you who are watching, when you're going to see this, but we uh, were recording this. Um, what's it going to be? Four days after the Queen's death. We have, there's a new king in England. He's he just addressed. I watched it this morning, the, the Houses of Parliament in, in the UK. Uh, then there's a new British prime minister who... Um, met with the Queen two or three days bef before she died. We have a new leader of the Conservative Party in Canada. Um, what are your thoughts? I'm sure you have thoughts about all of this. I guess I guess what I'm wondering is where is this going to take us? Are, are some of these things signs of hope? Are, are we um, going to see a new 
in our country, possibly a new political direction or regime that might correct some of the things we've been talking about today? Well, I was happy about um, about uh, Pierre Poulev. Um, let's start with the Queen. Okay, I, I'm not going to talk about Harry and Meghan. They really bug me and I'll just leave it at that. How dare they show up? Yuck, right? Pot shots at the Queen while she was in Balmoral dying. And I just like, I don't understand how that can even happen. But, mm -hmm. um, and I love the Queen. I grew up singing God Save the Queen in school. They piped it in through our speakers. So this is, and, and I also think, here, this is about her. It's not politics per se, but culturally, the idea that you suffer for a greater good, right? That, 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 you, that that's mm -hmm. what duty and honor and dignity are about, for good or ill, whether you liked her or not. That's what she represented. And the, the, the pot shots taken against her by the anti-racist academics in the States, literally wanting to dance on her grave, really scared me because, mm -hmm. and that was, that's, I think that's, I think young people are much more prone to sort of react that way that, than we are. But I, I fear about losing what she represented. Those are good, qualities and I'm not sure they're qualities that are admired the other thing just about that mm -hmm. I was reading the week before she died about how many of the English pubs which are the heart of these little communities especially out in the country are going to have to close because they don't have the money to support the energy costs to keep going right so this is all in support of Ukraine I mean the whole, like these important cultural institutions are being hurt to support this misbegotten shit show over in Ukraine that should have been settled months ago and could have been in talks. So that's my feeling about that. But for as far as Palev is concerned, you know, I wish him well. I, I'm glad he represents um, populism. I don't think populism is a bad word these days. Um, I think he's in for, I hope he has an amazing comms team because he's in for, the, the media will be completely against him. They may accuse him of cavorting with Vladimir Putin the way they did Trump. We've seen the playbook. They'll come up with something, right? They will not let this stand. Mm -hmm. I think if they do their jobs the way they're supposed to, which is to be equally as hostile to all the candidates, that he has a really good chance of winning. And I hope, and becoming prime minister, and I hope if he does become prime minister, that he does not do what they all do, which is get in and then sell out to the boys at the WEF, right? That's, if he does, boy, people will be very, very sad about that. Well, I worry because there's a lot of enthusiasm for him right now. And, yeah. and a lot of people talking about how much hope, and this is the politician we've needed since before Harper, and yeah. he'll save us. And my own feeling is I don't think there's a political solution to this. I don't think that, but, but, you know, I mean, he says all the right things and I certainly hope he's, he's the best that, that there is. Yeah. Um, I think he's probably the only person who's capable of going head to head with our prime minister. And I look forward very much to seeing those conversations and debates in the house. But um, I, I also wonder if he does a good enough job and uh, if Trudeau just can't quite match him in terms of being an orator, if some more of the media will um, find it a bit embarrassing to stand with Trudeau, though, if they were going to do that, you think it would have happened by now. So, you know. 
I know, Prime Minister Blackface. <laughs> Let me just say that that maybe the model for for him is is Ron DeSantis because mm. Ron DeSantis really has ruled the day based on the fact that he's terribly smart and very well read and when they started going after him over relaxing COVID restrictions in Florida, mm. he just, he, he assassinated the media with facts and data, right? Mm. And that's, the facts are on our side, full stop, right? So if Trump's problem was that he was too kind of lazy to really absorb it, Mm -hmm. um, but anybody who is trying to hold off another wave of these restrictions can easily, easily, and vaccine mandates too, can easily, easily do it just with facts and data. That, it's dead simple. And so if he's committed to that path, the best thing that he can do is be consulting with the right people and fu fully taking on what they say to him. Mm -hmm. What are you watching now for, I mean, what do you think is happening in Canada that holds the most promise, the most hope for us going forward? Um, that's a really good question. I, I feel the rise of indie media is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that True North Center is doing some pretty good stuff. Rupa's got a show. Um, I, and they're getting more attention. I think they're becoming viable. I mean, if you look at the media in this country, there isn't even really a proper conservative media outlet, really. You know, there's rebel news. They go a bit far for me. They do some good things, but they go a bit far. So so I, I think people are, um, that makes me hopeful that people are waking up and that places like uh, True North and, and others um, are able to sustain what is very expensive. But I think it's going to be a very, very interesting six months as the data comes out, lockdowns failed, media tries to hide that, but it's clear that that's what happened. We're dealing with massive, massive problems with our children. You know, I hope that Paul Ev would do things like have a kind of like um, a massive volunteer force of adults and and uh, university students to go in and help these kids as as tutors. You know, we, we've got it because we've almost lost a generation. I don't know if you know Irvin Student, but the things that he says about what's happened, you know, so if he was doing those hopeful things and really concretely addressing, like if he said, no, we're not going to participate in the WEF and we're going to go away, I would love him to do all those things. I, I would feel hopeful about that, but we'll mm -hmm. see. Without that, I think we have to hold tight to our families and just try to navigate what could be really awful for, for the coming year because mm -hmm. feeling that you are in possession of a, an important truth that is not recognized by the people you meet in your daily life is a terrible, terrible burden. I know you feel it every single day of your life mm -hmm. and it's hard. There's people in my family who still think I'm a nut for, for questioning the COVID, COVID um, narrative. So that's good, I, I'm not looking forward to that. And I actually, I'm sure like you, I need to find a way out. I need to find a couple of months of not doing that, of not doing this. I have to find it. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. been, it's been such a marathon 
right? For for people who sort of been in this for two years. And I think it's both two things are true. One is that the endurance required can't be sustained indefinitely. And by endurance, I mean a moral, psychological endurance. Yes. You can only be, you know, <laughs> worshiping the truth and diligent to the facts and defending yourself against the attackers for so long. But also at the same time, it is astounding what humans can do when they think that we've run out, that we have no more energy, we have no more um, commitment to, to our principles. And then we just dig deeper and find more and more and more. And it's really, I think, speaking of the queen, she said something very much like that, you know, that, that adversity, um, you know, that's when you really start to dig deep and find, find out who you are. And I think it's true that it's, um, we found so many people who are just deepening their character and their resolve through all of this. It shouldn't have been required, um, but it's, it's, it's like pressure working on the coal that's producing these diamonds. And Trish, as corny as it sounds, you are, you are one of those. And I just can't thank you enough for this chat today and for all the work you're doing. And I hope that your little two month break isn't too long. <laughs> we got to have you working on this stuff. So. Well, I would say <laughs> right last... back, I would say right back to you, your, your video that you sent out about, about your, you know, not crossing the line was a, it was, that video was a moment in this country. Everybody knows about it. I mean, I don't think I know anybody in the world we inhabit of awake people who have not not seen that. And I think it probably woke some people up too because you're so credible and you spoke so well and your emotion in that was so authentic that it was it was really I can't I couldn't have done that. You know, I couldn't have I couldn't I don't have the courage to do that. So I admire you very, very much. Well, I can tell you something about that that was kind of interesting. You interviewed me within days of that. Yeah that I did. I think I didn't, and it was such, such a good interview. And, but I was so, you know, I think I hadn't put all the pieces together. I've since realized that the kind of the emotion in that video came from the fact that it wasn't till I was recording it until I was speaking the words that I really realized what was happening in our country. It wasn't just about a medical problem of informed consent. I just realized in the moment how it was, how it was all connected and how we really are in very big trouble. And, uh, the fact that you know it's been a year and we're still working through all of this doesn't surprise me at all. But I think we have gained some steps, don't you think? We've I do, I, I I do think we have. But I also think, just to go back to our moral injury conversation earlier, that that we're sort of like the guys who just came back from Iraq, in the Walmart, and we're still vibrating from what we've seen and experienced, and everybody else is just shopping and they want to go, hey. You've got people in a war zone being blown to bits on your behalf. Please pay attention to this, right? So I do feel we are like the war veteran in the Walmart. That vibrating, though, that makes a lot of sense. I feel that on a regular basis. And it's that, uh, it's like the echo after the fireworks stop. Yes, it's, yes, yes, yeah. It's just still, yeah. yeah. Well, Trish, you and I, in our trauma, we will push ahead <laughs> Yeah. Try and find some source of moral repair. And thank you so much for this today. You're just such a treasure. Thanks for having me.